Well, good morning once again, Emmanuel. My name is Pastor Mark, and glad to be leading you in the Word of God again. If you have your Bibles with you, take them out and turn with me to Job chapter 32. We've been in a sermon series through the book of Job all summer long. We're nearing the end of the study and nearing the end of our series. We've only got a few more weeks left, and we find ourselves deep in this book and deep in our study. And if you have your place turned to Job 32, you'll be ready. We're going to read a portion of that chapter in just a few minutes. Well, good to be back here uh, with you. Uh, last, uh, last night, I was here just a few hours ago, standing in this place, and uh, we had a wedding here last night. Justin Schuler married Rachel Wise and had a great celebration here. And uh, the, the ceremony ended, and we all left to go off to the reception, and I don't come back until this morning. And I, I stand amazed because when I left here last night, there was flowers everywhere and runners and all sorts of stuff. And I come back just like you do, and everything is rearranged for a Sunday morning service, which is quite, it's, it's like a small miracle. And um, I, I appreciate uh, the, the, the paid staff and also a small army of volunteers that just kind of help get the place back together for us on Sunday morning. So very much appreciated. Well, let me have a word of prayer, and we'll get into our message for this morning from Job 32 through 37 was the text for this week. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you with uh, our Bibles open before us, and we want to hear from you. We pray that you would use uh, your word this morning in our lives for our good and for your glory. May you be exalted in our perspectives and in our faith, and uh, may we be taught from you today, we ask. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, this week we had read Job 32 through 37, and uh, quite a lengthy chapter or chapters that we read of this book. But as we get started, uh, what comes to mind, or better, better stated, who? Who comes to mind when you think of someone who is young, angry, opinionated, overconfident in their own wisdom, who says nothing that hasn't been said before in a long-winded speech that everyone ignores? Now, that's a rhetorical question. I don't need any out loud answers this morning. But uh, maybe in a, in a general way, who comes to mind when you think of someone who's young, angry, opinionated, overconfident in their own wisdom, says nothing that hasn't been said before in a long-winded speech that everyone ignores? Maybe you might be thinking about a college freshman pontificating on social media about uh, global economics or the far-reaching effects of climate change on Peruvian monkeys or Arctic seals or whatever that is. That might be a general category that comes to mind. Uh, maybe a recent political science graduate who hasn't served a single minute in public office but now feels they have the ability to run the entire country. They probably couldn't administrate the local post office, but they have graduated from school and now feel that they could just run, run the universe. And uh, they're very disappointed in the way things are going and sure they could do a better job. Uh, maybe the frustrated brand new employee who's been on the job for a total of three hours and 21 minutes and they are confident that they could run the place better than anyone else because the owners are idiots. You might think of someone like that. Maybe the unmarried uh, coffee barista with no children, giving parenting advice to the young mom who comes into the coffee shop with three young kids under five years old and quite confident they could do family life better than, than the mom. Are, are you all tracking with me? Okay. Who comes to mind? Who comes to mind when you think of someone who is young, angry, opinionated, overconfident in their own wisdom, who says nothing that hasn't been said before in long-winded speeches that everyone ignores? Well, this last week... I trust that you would have read with me and as a congregation, we would have read Job 32 through 37, which is a long speech given by Elihu. 
And as we read the speech, particularly as it's introduced, we discover that Elihu is this character. He's young, angry, opinionated, overconfident in his own wisdom, says nothing that hasn't been said before in a very long-winded speech that everyone ignores. He has the longest speech in the book. He speaks longer than anyone else. And when he's done, no one responds to him. Not positively, not negatively, it's like crickets. This guy speaks and no one speaks after him. No one says, hey, that was a great speech. You really landed on some good points there. Or no one says, what in the world are you talking about? We don't even understand what you're saying. It's just like no one speaks at all. Everyone just completely ignores him. It made me think of Elihu as like that strange dinner guest that you have over, and they're sitting at the table and they run on a 20-minute diatribe on some particular topic, and when they're done speaking, everyone looks at one another and goes, huh, interesting. And then the topic changes. Have you ever experienced that at a wedding reception or anything like that? Well, I've stated that Elihu is this guy, but you ought to see that for yourself. I've had you turn to Job 32. This is where Elihu is introduced to us in the text. Uh, let's, let's just begin reading the opening paragraph here. So these three men, that would be Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the characters that we've been introduced uh, to earlier in our reading through this book. These three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, here's the new guy we've not heard of before, the son of Barakel. Now, Elihu, his name means Yahweh is my God. Barakel is God has, whom God has blessed. And so this guy is a, a genuine uh, descendant of Abraham, if you will. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram. That family really liked Dodge trucks. Okay, you're still following me. This guy, Elihu, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now, Elihu had waited to speak because they were all older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in their mouth, the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Now, we'll pause there for a moment. As Elihu is introduced four times, it says that this young Elihu burned with anger. As we read that, that ought to raise some red flags in our minds. Because multiple times in the book of Proverbs and in the book of Ecclesiastes, the readers are warned against making friends with angry people. Why? Why are we warned about making friends with angry people? Well, because the scripture tells us anger lodges in the heart of fools. Angry people do foolish things. Uh, the person who rules his spirit is described as a person who is great in understanding. And a person who rules his spirit is a person of strength. The person who rules their own spirit is mightier than one who takes a city. So here is young Elihu, and four times over it says he is full of anger. And we discover that he is so full of anger that he's about ready to puke out a windy speech that doesn't answer Job, nor does it instruct Job's friends. We're going to find out he's just full of words. His wisdom would have been revealed in his restraint. His wisdom would have been revealed in his silence. But let's read on, verse 6. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you, my thoughts to you. I said, let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. 
It's not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I've been listening to you guys. You now listen to me. I will also declare my opinion, my thoughts. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Jump down to verse 17. I also, he continues, I also will answer with my share. I will also declare my opinion, for I am full of words. You sure are. Five chapters worth. And the spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my, my belly is like wine that is ready, has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I might find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. So four times as Elihu is introduced, he is described as burning with anger. And then here in this section, three times over, it says that Elihu, he's just got to declare his opinion. He's got to give his thoughts. He just can't help himself. He has to speak. You know, in Job chapter 28, we learn that gold is rare, therefore it's valuable. Opinions, everyone has one of those. They're not rare, they're not very valuable. And, and here is angry, angry Elihu, burning with anger, ready to burst, and he's going he's gonna to share his opinions. He's going to share his thoughts because he just can't help himself. He has to speak. The older, guy, the older guys couldn't give an answer, so Elihu feels he must provide one. And then he says, I'm, just, I'm full of words, which proves to be true with five chapters of run-on rhetoric. Well, as we read through this lengthy speech, um, we, we discover that uh, Elihu, in the next chapter, chapter 33, Elihu seeks to put himself on common ground with Job. And he says, he says, you know, hey, we're both created by the Lord God Almighty. He uses the metaphor, we are both pinched off from a piece of clay, if you will, and the Lord God Almighty shaped and fashioned us. We kind of put on our pants the same way. So Job, you don't have to be afraid of me because I'm not some superior speaking to you. So, so in the next chapter, you know, we think, oh, Elihu's kind of putting himself on common ground with Job. But then we flip over to chapter 36, and Elihu boasts that he has perfect knowledge. Chapter 36, verse 4, he says, Behold, one with perfect knowledge is with you. Huh? That's quite a boast. Matter of fact, chapter 36, verses 1 through 4, Elihu presents himself as speaking on God's behalf and declaring words that are true and not false, and he is one who has perfect knowledge. Again, in Job 28, we learn that God possesses wisdom. But in Job chapter 36, Elihu boasts that he has wisdom that God possesses and he must share it. Sadly, after immediately proclaiming that one with perfect knowledge is with you, he goes on to say that God does not keep the wicked alive, which we know to be completely untrue. God is often patient with the wicked, giving them time to turn from their ways and turn to him. The, the patience of God is intended to lead people to repentance. And so all that to say, Elihu is this young guy Younger than the other four, Job and his three friends. He's, he's clearly angry. He's opinionated. He's overconfident in his own wisdom. He says, man, one with perfect knowledge is with you. And then as we read the speeches, we discover he really doesn't say anything that's not been said before. Uh, his speech is a little nuanced. We, we do discover he's a great listener. He does quote them, and he does restate their arguments, and he, he does drop some gems here and there, but largely his arguments all land in the same place 
that, uh, that Job and Job's friends have landed. So he doesn't say anything that's not been said before. And we discover that here Elihu has a heightened delusion of his superior knowledge and a great overestimation of his own wisdom. Now, I, I say this, that there's this, this windy speech that you would have all read this past week. But I, I will argue that Elihu saved his best comments for the very end of his speech. If you look at Job chapter 37 and verse 5, Elihu says, God does great things that we cannot comprehend. That is a great statement of truth, a great statement of fact. It's like a capstone on the book. Uh, Elihu uh, should have landed there or should have began there and ended there. Uh, the reasons for Job's sufferings that have come upon Job, though, though the reason is incomprehensible until God reveals it. God does great things. God is great and he does great things that we cannot begin to comprehend. The second thing that he says that I think is great, uh, chapter 37, verse 14, he challenges his listeners to stop and consider the wondrous works of God. This is very practical, very applicable. And the wondrous works of God that Elihu challenges his listeners to do or to consider is, is God's mighty acts of creation. Uh, he would speak along with the psalmist, behold, the heavens declare the glory of God. And, and Elihu would, would say, hey, let's stop and consider the wondrous works of God, his, his mighty acts of creation that are full of unity and diversity and simplicity and complexity. God reveals his expansive knowledge and his wonderful wisdom in the things that he has created. As I'm reading this part of Elihu's speech, I was reminded of the old children's song, our God is so big. So strong and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. And, and we're little. We are little and limited and contingent. So, so Job is saying some great things very, at the very end of his speech. God does great things we cannot begin to comprehend. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. And then in chapter 37, verse 22, he just says, God is clothed with awesome majesty. And so Elihu doesn't have all of his speeches in the train wreck. He does say some good things right at the end. Probably should have been the sum total of his speech. But as we read through the speech, and I trust that you read it this last week, Elihu really does nothing or says nothing that really moves the argument forward. Uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't provide any answers. He doesn't provide any resolution. And so that's why I think at the end of his speech, no one responds. No one's like, man, that was great, or... I don't understand what you were saying. It's, it's, it's somewhat benign at the end of his speech. And so Job is still left without answers of why calamities have fallen on him. And Job's friends have been defending God's justice without declaring, by declaring Job a sinner. And, and that, that just still remains a stalemate. The question can be asked, if Elihu is young and angry and opinionated and overconfident in his wisdom and really doesn't move the arguments forward at all and doesn't say anything that's not already been said in a, in a long-winded speech that, uh, that's totally ignored, the question could be asked, then why is it in the book? Why is it here? Sounds like Siri is trying to give us an answer. If Elihu doesn't move the arguments forward, if Elihu, if his speech doesn't provide any resolution or any solution or any help, and if Elihu, if his words don't answer the book of Job, why is it here? Why is it in the book? Why is it given? Well, undoubtedly, there may be a number of reasons for his speech. There are some gems, as I said, to be found in his speech. But here are a couple things that it did in me. 
So at this part of my message, it's going to be a little bit subjective. I read the five chapters like you did, and I listened to Job's run-on rhetoric like you did. And, uh, and I, I'm trying to find out if he says anything new, if he provides any resolution, if he says, and I'm, I'm kind of landing empty. And so uh, as I'm sitting back answering that question, why, why is it even here in the book? Uh, it did provide a couple of things for me. First, Elihu's windy speech made me even more hungry for what God has to say. After reading through three rotations of stalemated arguments, where Job just continually declares his innocence and he asks God to come and give him answers, and Job's friends de defend God's justice by declaring Job to be a great sinner, which makes Job defend his innocence and ask God for answers, which makes Job's friends defend God's justice by throwing Job under the bus and calling him a sinner. And there's this, this revolving debate. And then Elihu speaks. And so after reading through three rotations of stalemated arguments, and after reading this longer argument that Elihu makes that really doesn't land anywhere we've not been before, at the end of that, I'm just like, speak, O Lord, because I'm ready to hear what you have to say. I'm ready to hear the answers that you give. Again, it reminded me of this song that we sometimes sing here, Speak, O Lord. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth and plant it deep in us. Shape and fashion us in your likeness. In verse 2 we say, Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise. Cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you. And so listening to Elihu's lengthy speech that really doesn't resolve anything, that doesn't say anything we've not already heard. He just kind of restates arguments. It just makes me hungry to hear from God. And that's where the book takes us next. When Elihu finishes his speech, no one replies, but God picks up his speech. And Elihu has me ready to hear from God. I remember back when I was going through seminary, um, my seminary profs had me uh, at various times reading through large systematic theologies, kind of cover to cover, those big textbooks. And uh, they would have me read systematic theologies, some from great, what you might call orthodox theologians. Their theology is just fantastic. And then they also had me read systematic theologies from guys who were heretics. And, but I remember reading through those, both the, the good systematic theologies and the poor ones, but I remember reaching the point like, I just want to hear from God. I don't want to hear someone else's thoughts about God. I just want to hear from God. And when I read Elihu's speech, one of the impacts it had on me was like, I just, I want God to speak. And that's where the book takes us in the next chapters. The second thing it does, uh, does in me or does for me, Elihu's speech and particularly his anger that we read about in the very beginning. His anger at the arguments that have been spoken between Job and his friends, not resolving anything, not reaching any conclusions, not having any answers. Elihu's anger reminds me of how uneasy we are with unanswered questions, with mystery and with wonder. We struggle not knowing. We struggle not having answers. We want to have answers, and we want to have 
resolution and solution, and we are unquestionable. We, 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 we are dissatisfied with having questions unanswered. There's a couple of dangers in being human and being uneasy with mystery. As humans, we ought to grow increasingly comfortable with mystery because there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it. When we don't have an answer and we can't seem to find one, the danger is we can easily be tempted to make up an answer and then hold to our fabricated answer like we've really landed somewhere. Uh, we can start making up answers and, and, and because we've just got to have an answer, and then when we start making up our answers and defending them, we start to become our own authority. We start to become our own God, which is a bad lane to run in. I'll circle back to the Ecclesiastes, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. God is in heaven, and we are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. When, when we don't have an answer, which we often won't have an answer, when we don't have an answer, it's better to ask God for wisdom and wait for his revelation than to make up answers from our limited perspective and then prove our foolishness with our responses. Elihu would have been better off if he would have just communicated his last chapter than the long run-on rhetoric that he had that made no difference in anyone's thinking. Uh, that, that's the first danger. Uh, we, we, we are uncomfortable. I learned from Elihu, we are just really uncomfortable not having answers, and the danger is we can make up answers and then hold to them and then defend them, and it's a bad lane to run in. Uh, the second danger another danger of being uneasy with unanswered questions with mystery and wonder. Here it is. If the God we are worshiping, if the God we are worshiping never acts outside of our thinking, never does anything outside of our limited reasoning, never blows us away with realities beyond us, and if we have an answer for everything that God is doing, then the God that we are worshiping is a God of our own imagination, not the God who is above and free and not answerable to us. If you and I end up having all the answers to everything that God is doing, then you and I have a very small g God that we've manufactured in our minds. The God who is, the great I am, the God who has revealed himself in his word, the God who has revealed himself most perfectly in his son, Jesus Christ, the God who is regularly blows our minds and regularly expands our categories and regularly eliminates our boxes as he reveals himself as holy. You know, when we speak about holiness, we often think about moral purity, which is a thing, but holiness actually means in a class all by himself, or in a class all by itself. And God is holy. He is in a class all by himself. He is holy other. There is no one like him, and he doesn't answer to anyone. So if the God we are worshiping never rattles us, never amazes us, never leaves us wondering then you and I have a small G God that we've made up in our own minds 
And that danger has a label. And that label is idolatry. You see, we don't need to have a small idol of stone or clay that we fall down to worship. We can just have a God that we've manufactured in our own imagination. And then we have all the answers because why wouldn't we have all the answers? Because God is just whom we imagine him to be. The God of the Bible, the creator, redeemer God, the great I am, the Lord God Almighty is a God who regularly does things to fill people with awe and wonder at what he accomplishes. For he is a God who is worshiped and not manipulated. You know, this, this will ring true for all eternity. Uh, you and I, in our limit, limited perspectives as human beings, we, we cannot even begin to fathom eternity. We cannot fathom timelessness. And as we read the book of Ephesians, it says that God, throughout all eternity, which we cannot fathom, God, throughout all eternity, will continually awe us with his infinite glory and grace. That means for all eternity, we'll stand in awe of him and we'll never plumb the depths of him. So I'm reminded from Elihu's speech, man, Elihu is just really struggling with this unresolved conflict and unanswered questions and he doesn't know and, and of course he won't know until God reveals. We know why Job is suffering because God has revealed it to us. Job's friends don't know why Job is suffering. God hasn't revealed it to them yet. And so I, I, I'm reminded from Elihu that, man, we, we often really struggle with unanswered questions, with wonder and mystery, and we, we like to have answers, and we can get angry and worshiping God in wonder and trusting God in mystery is far better than making up answers and then defending the truth like we've really landed someplace and it's just our own answer. Worshiping God in wonder and trusting God in mystery is better than making up answers and far better than manufacturing a God of our own imagination. Elihu leads me to those landing places. There are things I will not know. There are things that I know that I don't fully understand. I have been and I'm being trained by God to trust God in mystery on the basis of what I know of his good character. Next week, our reading will take us from Job 38 through 41. And next week, we'll finally get to listen to God speaking in the book. God shows up and God begins to speak. And as you read through those chapters, you'll probably be like Job, putting your hand on your mouth and be like, boy, I made arguments. I was speaking about things I don't know anything about. And he'll stand in awe of God. And I trust that'll be our case as we continue our reading through the book. And in Job 38 through 41, we finally listen to God. I think Elihu has us ready, has us ready to hear from God, has us ready to stand in wonder and in awe, for God will not disappoint. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful again for this very old piece of literature that we've been reading about this man named Job and his friends. We've read through it. We've wrestled through it. We've learned from it. We continue to learn from it. We, we are grateful for how you have chosen to reveal yourself in words written down on a page so that we might know who you are 
We might know what you do, know your character and your nature, and trust in your goodness and trust in you. Father, I thank you that you've revealed yourself not only in words written down, but most perfectly in the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, I'm grateful that we can know you based on the revelation that you've given us of yourself. Father, we also recognize that you are God and we are on earth and we want our words to be few. We want to stand in awe of you. And Father, when we don't have answers, when we don't, don't know what you're doing, may we learn to wait. May we learn to trust. May our faith grow in trusting you in mystery and in wonder and in awe. Uh, Father, you are good. We thank you again for this book and for this study and for these lessons that we're learning from this character. We pray now that you'd bless our continued study in this book. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.